take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, towards the back of the New Testament. We are working our way through uh, this book this summer and then moving into 2 Thessalonians as we continue. And we are on chapter 3. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll be looking at the whole chapter um, in its entirety this morning, okay? So why don't you guys stand up with me for the reading of God's holy word. And may God give us attentive ears and hearts as we dive in. Starting in verse 1, chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has now just come to us from you and has brought, uh, brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since, we thank, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. Well, many of you guys know, or are about to learn, that I like to garden. Okay, so uh, in my yard I have a big uh, uh, section where I tore out all the grass and planted a bunch of different uh, vegetables and I like to watch things grow. I'm not very patient at watching those things grow. Uh, so it's, uh, it's kind of helping me to be a little bit more patient. But I like to watch those grow. I like to pick off the, the fruit and the vegetables that I grow and eat them. But one time, I grew a giant sunflower. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a giant sunflower. Uh, but these things are probably even taller than me. And the head is probably about that big. And I grew this giant sunflower. And they're really a sight to see because as flowers go, they must be kind of one of the largest out there. 
And I've actually seen a whole garden of these on Baltic Avenue in the summertime. A lady plants her whole fence with these giant sunflowers, and it takes up the whole thing. And it's rather breathtaking to see when they're all in bloom. But what was almost as amazing as what was above ground was what was below ground. So when I grew this sunflower for the first time, when the season was done, I put it in a pot and I took it out because I think I wanted to use the pot for something else. And when I lifted it out, it was the whole dirt was enveloped by this massive root system. Okay, the root system had acted like a net because it was so extensive that all the soil just came out just like that. And I was amazed at how extensive this root system was. And of course, for a flower this tall, in order for it to stand up against the wind and the rain, obviously it has to have a strong root system that would hold that flower up so that it would be unmovable in the wind. That when the wind and the rains came, that it would stand strong and steadfast. And as we look at our text today, we're going to see that Paul's desire is that you and I as Christians would be the exact same way as that sunflower, that we would be steadfast, that we would be immovable, that we would be grounded in our faith in the Lord. See, as we study 1 Thessalonians 3 today, we're going to see that because the Lord is soon to come back, we are to remain steadfast established and unmovable in the in the present time we know that jesus is coming back we don't know when he is coming back but in the present time god's will for us is to be steadfast unmovable established in the lord and as i as i wrestled through this text and really how to bring it together how to preach it one of the things that began to slowly take form in my mind was to think about paul as a church planter or a pastor. See, Paul, he wore a lot of different hats, okay? He was an apostle, he was a church planter, he was a pastor, he was an elder of God's church. But to this church in Thessalonica, he was a church planter and a pastor. He had certain things that he wanted to see for this church, and he, places that he wanted to see them grow, things that he wanted to affirm them in and encourage them that they were doing well. And so as I thought about preaching this text, I decided to help us to see three good and godly things that each pastor should want for his congregation. And first, we're going to see that first one is standing fast amidst opposition. Standing fast amidst opposition. Briefly, let's remember what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians. Acts 17 gives us a, a picture of this, if you remember, as, as Pastor Santo has been telling us, that Paul visited this city. He preached there in the synagogues, and guess what started to happen? As he preached the Gospels, people started to respond. They started to believe in the good news of the Gospel. And God was raising up new Christians, new converts, into a newly formed church, or newly forming church there in that town. But what happened? There was a group of jealous Jews that were not happy with what he was doing. Remember, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so here we have this guy turning the whole world upside down, as Acts 17 says. And I love that phrase, turning the whole world upside down, because that's what God was doing there in Thessalonica, but also in all other parts of the area. 
But these Jews kind of incited this mob against Paul and his missionary band, and they basically had to get out of town, okay? But left there was this group of new converts who needed to be discipled, who needed to grow, who needed to be affirmed and taught the things of the Lord. They needed an older uh, brother or sister in the faith to come alongside of them and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to live a life after the Lord. And yet, Paul wondered as he had to be driven out, what would happen? Would they stay strong? Would they stand firm amidst this opposition that had been rising up? You can see his pastoral heart here for the people that God had put under his care. He's no longer able to be with them, and he's wondering in his mind, will they stand firm in the storm? Would they fold under pressure? And so you can imagine Paul's strong desire to return to them. I thought it was kind of like, even though I'm not in this stage yet, I think it's kind of like the uh, parent who lets their new teenage uh, driver go out for the first time. Okay? Thank God I'm not there yet. Um, but you think about this, right? You, you've taught them how to drive. You've, they've gone through driver's ed. And, uh, and then you had your, your uh, permit there. And you've you know, been with them. And you got the mom over there pressing on the brakes, like acting like she's pressing on the brakes when there's no brakes on the other side, you know, telling you to stop and all that kind of stuff. They have all the training. And yet here's the first time that they can go out. And in that first time that they go out, Imagine an unexpected thunderstorm comes that, their way. And so you are waiting up late, waiting for them to return, wondering if they're going to be okay. Wonder if they're going to remember everything that you've taught them and other people have taught them. Anxious to see their return and that they're okay. Same thing's going on here in our text. Verses 1 and 2, again, let me remind you what it says. Paul says this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. See, one of the things that jumps out to us in this passage is that Paul really does care for these people. Paul really does care for their well-being, that they would be strong and unmovable in these trials. And this is the way that a godly pastor cares for his people. Lord willing, it's the way that Santo and I care for you guys as the church, that God has entrusted to our care, that we would want to know that God is working in your lives, that you are standing immovable in those times of suffering and those trials that will come in your life, and that you're standing firm in the Lord. But going back to the church here in Thessalonica, one of the reasons Paul was so anxious to hear from them is because of the afflictions that we hear about in verses 3 through 5. And Paul reminds them about the, his prior teaching to expect suffering. He says in verse 4, We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Guys, we know that affliction and suffering is a part of the Christian life. We were told that from the very beginning, Lord willing, from those that invested in us and discipled us and pastored us because it's all over the Bible. God says, expect suffering. It's a part of the Christian life. 
It's a part of the life that we have on this side of glory that you and I will go through hard times. We will go through afflictions. We will go through trials. We will go through opposition. Jesus said they hated me, and so they're for sure going to hate you as you represent me in the world. So no wonder that sometimes when you go and speak the name of Jesus, people don't like it. They tell you to be quiet. They call you things like insensitive or intolerant or a bigot or whatever it may be. The Christian life is full of suffering. And in those times of suffering, what is actually real comes through to the surface. What's real comes to the surface, okay? So if you're a fair-weather fan of Jesus, when that suffering comes, what's going to happen? You're going to say, okay, you know what? Some suffering comes. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm going to go with the crowd so that I don't have to suffer and be persecuted. But those that truly are following Christ will be refined by that trial, will be refined by that affliction that God has. And yet still, here Paul is worried because the possibility of apostasy and walking away from the Lord is still a reality. It's still a possibility. And that's why Paul responded as he did. Will they continue on in the faith as they have been trained? So our heart for, uh, for you guys as your pastors is first to tell you to expect suffering, to expect affliction, to expect trials. It's going to happen in your life. Lord willing, we are not going to be found telling you that you are not going to suffer. Lord willing, we're not going to be found telling you that the Christian life is all sunshine and roses. That if you believe in Jesus, you're just going to get richer and healthier and wealthier and everything is going to go your way because it's not. In fact, a lot of times when we set our face to follow Jesus, things get harder. The heat is turned up, as we say. Surely the Christian life is filled with all kinds of wonderful blessings. I don't mean to be doom and gloom here because God gives us all kinds of beautiful blessings, whether it's our families or whether it's the simple uh, uh, blessings of a beautiful day where we can go out to the beach or whatever it may be and enjoy his creation. And yet suffering comes from the same hand as the hand that gives us those beautiful things. In God's providence, he brings both blessing and trials. And we need to see that as we are instructed here in Scripture. And this leads to another goal that we have for you as your pastors that God has for his children, which is standing firm in the midst of these trials. Look back at verses 2 and 3. It says this, To establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. See, the idea of standing firm or being rooted and established is all over this passage. Think back again to the idea of the sunflower. That sunflower has so many roots inside the ground that it can stand up even though how big it is and how big that flower is, no matter the rain or anything that comes its way, it will stand up and will stand firm. The same idea here is for you and for, for me to be rooted in God so that when these things come, we will stand firm. 
Uh, one commentator talking about this word says it's the, the word has the idea of putting in a buttress as a support. Uh, I didn't know what a buttress was, so I had to look that up, okay? A buttress is an architectural structure built against or projecting from a wall which serves to support or reinforce the wall. To reinforce the wall, to strengthen it, to make it hold up under the weight and the pressure. Again, think of the idea of that giant sunflower or a giant oak tree that spreads its roots all over so that it stands for hundreds of years. The idea is unmovable, unshakable. So when afflictions come, when opposition arises on account of your relationship with the Lord, are you easily swayed? Are you easily compromising? Do you easily just turn the other way and run until the trial is over? Or do you stand firm in that? It makes us look at our relationship with the Lord. It makes us think about our walk with Him and to take that a little bit more seriously. It makes us want to seek the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It makes us want to be in His Word and in prayer and to be together with other Christians because through these means of grace, He strengthens us to stand firm in the midst of opposition. We were not meant to live by ourselves. We were not meant to live on little islands. We were meant to be a community who fights the fight together. You cannot do it on your own. We need each other and these means of grace that God has given us. And thankfully here, the case, uh, as Timothy came back and reported to Paul, was that this is exactly what was happening. He was able to receive the report with joy because they were standing firm. They were continuing on in the faith. News of their brotherly love and the other fruits of the Spirit were coming back to them and spreading throughout the region. And so he was uh, elated and overjoyed, revived, as it were, of this report. See, one of the greatest joys of a pastor is to know that your work and your labor is not in vain. To know that God is working in the people that he has entrusted to your care. That they are standing firm in the midst of these trials, in the midst of opposition. That's supposed to be one of Santo and I's greatest joys, to see you guys thriving in your walk with the Lord, no matter what the circumstances are. That's what we pray for, and that's what we labor for. And Paul goes on, though, to show us also of God's instruction of standing fast in our love, verse 11. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now may, God, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So again, we see Paul's heart here as a pastor for his people. Some call this a prayer wish or just simply a prayer, things that, God, or that, that Paul wants for his people. But it shows us the last two things, and the one being love. The topic of love here. We'll see it this week. We'll see it next week. The topic of brotherly love as we look at 1 Thessalonians 3 and chapter 4. But simply here, we are told to grow in our love for one another and everyone that we come in contact with. Notice here the Lord's work in, 
in love increasing in us. It says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And I got to stop there because what's really refreshing here is that the Lord is at work in you and me to help produce this love that he wants to see in us. Because I don't know about you, but how many times I fail to love you guys as I should, how many times I fail to love my wife and my kids as I should, my fellow, my fellow co-workers in the gospel as I should. And I have to realize that I am not alone. You are not alone in this pursuit of brotherly love. God is at work in us. See, if that wasn't the case, if it was left totally up to us, then all we would have is despair because all we would see is that we are failing to love people like we should. And yet because we are Christians, because Jesus lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit, we can actually love each other and grow in our love for each other. It can happen. It is happening. And it will happen. God is in the driver's seat, as it were. He is the one who is in control, and he can break every loveless bone in our body and replace it with a genuine brotherly love for each other. That's one of the things that Paul prays for his people, and that's one of the things that we pray for you. Notice also the extent to which this love is to abound or to grow. It says that he is praying that it would increase and abound. See, one of the things that I recognize here as Paul is shepherding his people is that he affirms the good things that are going on in their walk with the Lord, but as any good coach, he presses them farther, right? A good coach, what does he do? He says, all right, you made a good jump shot, but let's get it better, okay? Or you started out well in this sprint, now let's get it better. There's always more room to grow on this side of heaven. The same is true for you and I. That there's always room for us to grow. And as Paul shepherds his people, as he loves his people, he points out the good things and encourages them. But he also says, you know what? you got room to grow. Here's where a few places where you're not growing in brotherly love or you're not doing well. So the job of pastor is, yes, to exhort and encourage, but then sometimes it's also to rebuke and to correct. Each of those play an important role in our growth to maturity as Christians. And so this idea here of love abounding and overflowing, it made me think of, uh, if you guys have ever seen those pyramid fountains where there are kind of little pools of water and the water comes up out of the top and fills the first little compartment and then it overflows to the next little compartment below it and as those overflow or fill up, they overflow into the bottom. The same thing is true here where we are to overflow with love, and as we are filled up with it, it overflows into our family's life. It overflows into our parenting and into our, uh, our extended family, and it flows into those that we work with, and it abounds in love for each other. The idea here that love is to be contagious. It's the kind of thing you want to catch, not the cold or the uh, stomach bug that you don't want to catch because it's contagious, but it's the type of thing that you want to catch. As we love one another, it kind of spurs the other person to love and to receive that love and then to give that love. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was, I was just praying and, and wondering what would it be like if New City was known as a people that love each other in this way. We may be a few people, but what if a few people loved each other like Jesus loves us? How would that affect our lives? 
How would that affect our families? How would that affect our marriages? How would that affect our workplaces? If we showed the love that Jesus showed us and continues to show us, it would be contagious. It would transform a community, let alone a person. Well, as we turn to verse 13, we see one of the last things that uh, Paul says he has a heart for for his people, and that's the, the idea of standing fast in our holiness. Standing fast in our holiness. Look at verse 13. It says this, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We are told over and over and over again in the Bible that we are called to be holy. Right? That's one thing that we can't miss. There may be some things that are sprinkled throughout the scripture that if you're not paying close attention, you may miss. But this is one of those things from front to back. We see over and over and over again. God's will is that you would be holy. How many times do we wonder what is God's will for my life as we face a job or as we face a new stage in life? How many times we ask that question, what does God want of me? And how good it is when he says, this is what I want. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to be. Holiness is one of those things. See, when God saves us through the work of Christ and Christ alone on the cross, he begins a transformation project in each one of us. A renovation project, as it were, where he is rooting out that old person in us that was enslaved to sin. And he is replacing that with righteousness, replacing that with holiness, so that we look more and more like Jesus each and every day. It's a great joy for us as pastors to come alongside of you and to help you to become the people that God has saved you to be. That's what Paul's expressing here. He's expressing the joy that it is to come alongside of them and to see them grow in their holiness. It's the same true of us as your pastors. But here in verse 13, we have to see something. We have to see that uh, Paul doesn't have the present in mind, but he has the end in mind. It says this, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. And so it's not the present time that Jesus has, it's the time that is to come. His second coming is in view here. And there is a goal that God has for us as he expresses it through Paul. The goal is that when Christ returns, that we would be established in holiness. That we would be blameless in holiness. That word for establish is the same word that we looked at back there in verse 2. And so what we see here is that the end goal of a life pursuit of sanctification is holiness. Right? That's the end goal. That you and I would be holy. That we would look like Jesus that we would be ready to stand before him on that day. You know, Santo said this earlier, that we are not going to reach perfection here on this earth. That's why we have a, a confession of sin each and every week. That's why we confess to God daily, God, I'm not the person that I want to be. But in the same, the same sense, we can say I'm not the person I once was. 
I'm not the person I want to be, but I'm not the person I once was. See, he's working inside of us, but he's working towards a goal. And that goal is that you and I would be holy and blameless. That one day we would be free from sin's presence and its power. That we would be restored completely to the image of God that we were before the fall. That finally we would be holy as he is holy. What a picture of of completeness, of wholeness. He's putting us back together so that we would be complete and whole, ready to be with him for all eternity. Think about that. How beautiful that is and what he's doing in each of us. But we are reminded here that we have to stand before God one day. We have to stand before him as our judge and we have to give an account of our lives. We need to be reminded that surely we are forgiven only through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. But also, we need to be reminded that those that God saves, he sanctifies completely. That means, meaning the, the, the work that he starts, he will complete. Philippians uh, 1.6 says this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So God has an end goal for us. He has an end goal for us to be holy, and we will be holy if we are his. But thank God that he is in control of that process. But you know what? That doesn't mean that you and I don't have a responsibility. We don't have a part to play in that process of growing to be more and more like Christ. And we will have to give an account one day of that process. That's why Paul prays. That's why we pray this prayer that we would be established blameless in holiness at the coming of the Lord. So my question is, are you ready? Am I ready for the return of Jesus? We know he's coming back one day. He'll come like a thief in the night. We'll study that here in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, his return. And yet, are we making the preparations to be ready for the return of the Lord? How do we prepare for that return? And as we've seen here in the text, one way is that we keep our hands on the plow, cultivating a life of holiness, a life of purity, a life of being whole and complete before the Lord. Yes, it's God's work, but it's something that he's working in us and we play a part. There is effort there. There is something to be pursued that God gives us the strength to pursue that, to put to death sin and to put on righteousness as we've studied so many times in God's Word. See, Paul had a pastor's heart for this church at Thessalonica. He wanted to see them thriving in the Lord. Even in the midst of all these trials, all these afflictions, all these bad things that were happening, he wanted to see that they loved Jesus and that they lived for Jesus, even in the midst of all these hard times. That's what he worked for. That's what he labored for. That's what he bled for. That's what he thought about as their pastor. That's what he prayed for. And Lord willing, that's what Santo and I pray for for you. That's what we labor for for you, to see you thriving in your walk with the Lord. We don't want to just see you hanging on. We want to see you like that oak tree, firm and established, so that even when a Hurricane Sandy comes through, that that tree is still standing. So that when the worst storms of life come our way, that we are still unmovable, established, rooted in the Lord. 
That's our goal for you. That's God's goal for you. That's God's goal for all of us that are his children. He will see us through to the end. We know that. We can take that promise to the bank. But we have a role to play in that process as we go along. He's coming back again. Question is, are we ready? God's heart for us is that we would be ready for his return and look forward to that day when we will be with him and when we will no longer struggle with sin. We will be perfect and complete as he is. Once again, because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, your word truly is a light to our feet, a lamp unto our path. God, your word is, is sweeter than honey, as we confessed earlier. Sweeter and better than the best treats and things that we can have here on this earth. And we thank you, Lord, that we were able to feast upon your word this morning. God, I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm amidst the opposition this summer. That you would help us to stand firm in our brotherly love for each other. You would help us to stand firm in our holiness. God, that you would search our hearts and to show us the places where we need to grow. God, you as our leader, as our coach, as our supreme coach, you know what we need the most. Some of us need to be encouraged and exhorted after a hard season of life. Some of us need a, a rebuke or a correction because we're not walking with you or we're not following you or we are pretty lackadaisical about the things of you and we need to be woken up. But you know, you know what we need, Lord. And so we pray that you would bring that. We pray that you would sanctify us through and through so that we are ready for the day of the Lord. King Jesus, we look forward to your return. And we pray as, as John prayed in Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.